I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. You're listening to our daily podcast edition of the program. I'm delighted to welcome to the show today Dr. Richard Corsi. He's Dean and Professor of Engineering and Computer Science at Portland State University. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dean. Can you tell us what we know uh, about airborne transmissibility of COVID that we did not know um, perhaps a month ago or earlier on in the pandemic? Yeah, so great question. So, uh, you know, early in the pandemic, there were all sorts of indications to many of us that it was uh, an air, you know, that airborne transmission or transmission by aerosols was relevant. Um, but over time, there was just more and more circumstantial evidence through uh, outbreak after outbreak in different indoor environments that had a common, sort of a common thread of uh, densely occupied indoor environments that were poorly ventilated. And, and that just sort of raised red flags all over the place that this looks more and more like it's a, um, a disease that has an aerosol transmission route. Um, and then in March, a paper came out in the New England Journal of Medicine that quantified the half-life of infectious viruses and aerosols. And it was fairly long relative to the uh, typical age of air in a building, how long uh, air stays in a building. Uh, and over over more and more time, there were you know greater samples collected in different environments where where the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the infectious form of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, could be seen uh, in sample in particle samples collected in different indoor environments. One of the things that I'm interested in understanding better is the difference between airborne transmissibility of COVID relative to the annual influenza that we experience or different types of influenza um, and, and any other comparable viruses that we've experienced in the past? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. So um, it took a long time for some in the health sciences to come around to influenza being, um, uh, <laughs> influenza being something that could be transmitted by the aerosol route. Um, that's fairly well accepted now. Um, I think the and and I think the big difference is between SARS-CoV-2 and influenza is essentially the infectivity of the virus, which is an area that you know I'm I'm not a virologist, but you know um, influenza viruses, infectious influenza viruses, that 0.1 to 1 percent of viruses that come out of the human body that it's actually infectious. Most of the viruses that come out of the human body are not infectious. Um, they can stay in the air long enough that they can they can transmit the disease. Through the airborne route, and the same is true for SARS-CoV-2. I think the difference is um, the difference is probably the infectiousness of the virus itself. The infectiousness of the virus, and speaking from the engineering perspective, um, what would be different about the design of this virus that would make it more infectious in the air? So, yeah, and I should maybe back up on that a second, Alex. So the, the other big issue between influenza and, and, and COVID-19, obviously, is that uh, people that are asymptomatic are, can be spreaders, right? So um, just by speaking and breathing, those that don't show any symptoms with this particular virus um, can be infecting others around them, and that's not the case for influenza. So I think that's probably the biggest difference between the two. Um, that adds to the infectiousness of indoor environments as opposed to necessarily the infectiousness of the virus. So I Many people 
attempted to conflate the flu in, in various respects, yeah. but including in this respect saying, oh, you're pre-symptomatic, asymptomatic. The full extent of asymptomatic transmission is still not known, but it was erroneously conflated with the flu early on in the analysis of even top scientists. That's correct. That's absolutely correct. You know, the, the transmission route, though, if you look at people that are infected with influenza, there's, there's been a fair amount of research on the number of uh, particles that are emitted from a cough from somebody that has influenza or uh, somebody who's speaking and has influenza. It's highly unlikely that the sort of distribution of particles or the variation of particles that come out of uh, the respiratory system that coughs or speaks is different in terms of just particle generation from influenza to SARS-CoV-2. There has been a lot of research on the percent of viruses that are infectious for influenza when they come out of the human body, when they come out of the human respiratory system. Um, and those numbers generally range from about 0.1 to 1%. That has been assumed for SARS-CoV-2, and there have been some earlier studies, one out of Germany, I remember, that, that came up with sort of similar ballpark numbers. Um, and so there, there are similarities between the two, certainly in terms of, of particle generation, highly likely in terms of the, the degree of infectiousness, and also um, the half-life between SARS-CoV-2 and the original SARS uh, virus, we'll call it CoV-1, um, that they have very similar half-lives uh, in air. So the inactivation rate for the coronavirus we dealt with a decade ago is is similar to this coronavirus. So we can we can draw start you know draw these analogies and use use that information for modeling to predict exposure and dose in the respiratory system of SARS-CoV-2. There's still some data that are missing. You know we're missing information about uh, viral loads as a function of uh, where you are in your infection, uh, how many infectious viruses are released, and how they vary with particle sizes that come out of your respiratory system. Those are two key num- Those are two key factors we don't know yet. In a more innovative pandemic response, our country would be employing computing technology, AI, um, and other scientific means to combat the virus. Um, are there ways in which we could be using computing um, that we're not in addressing the pandemic? That's a great question. So, uh, you know, I'm a building scientist and there are simple models for looking at uh, uh, airborne transmission of any, you know, diseases in indoor environments, air- airborne infectious diseases, as well as other pollutants. And those models vary from very simplistic models to very sophisticated models that use computational fluid dynamics to look at things like if your ventilation system is designed this way in terms of supply vents and return ducts and uh, airflow into buildings from other spaces. There's pretty sophisticated models that really haven't been employed to the extent that they could so far to figure out what types of arrangements of ventilation systems, floor versus ceiling, uh, where things are located, where people should be uh, in a building or in a room or in a big space or in an auditorium, you know, all of those things. That work hasn't really been done to the extent that it should be to this point, in my opinion. Um, and then you can also run simulations that are very sophisticated simulations that uh, use Monte Carlo simulations. So you can run literally tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of simulations to look at sweet spots where you might have situations where you say this is an absolute situation you don't want to be anywhere near versus situations that are 
you know, maybe much lower risk in the same indoor environment, depending upon how you arrange the indoor environment, how you how you operate your mechanical system and, and other operations in the building. So that hasn't happened yet. And part of the reason that hasn't happened is early on in this pandemic, you know, one of the four major transmission routes was downplayed. And that was uh, what I would consider to be the far field or the aerosol transmission route away from close contact. Um, by downplaying that without any justification at all, uh, we got behind the curve and people weren't doing that kind of research. And I think now's the time to start doing that kind of research to make our buildings healthier buildings. Right. The kind of research that would indicate what those highest risk vectors are in the context of aerosol transmission. That's what you mean. Exactly. That and also how how do we use that information to redesign buildings to make them uh, you know, protect people, to lower the probability of infection in buildings. So we, we haven't gotten there because we sort of dragged our feet on one of the four major transmission routes early on. And now we're playing catch up on that route. Why do you think that it was downplayed to the extent it was by the health and medical authorities? Um, is it because it was truly novel in the way that it infected in the air? Or is it was it something else, some other bias against airborne transmission? So I'm an engineer. It's hard for me to, to you know, contemplate why, why certain things were done in that respect uh, amongst policymakers and, 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 quite frankly, the health science community. Um, I think Dr. Fauci had said about a month and a half ago that there was great concern about frontline healthcare workers needing N95 masks and not wanting the public to panic into consuming them all. Um, but I think there, you know, that world is a is a binary world that we either um, um, protect frontline healthcare workers at the expense of the public, or or vice versa. And I think there probably could have been a middle ground where uh, it was communicated to the public that you know you should take precautions that the airborne route might be a route, uh, the aerosol transmission route might be important, and that you should avoid going into densely populated uh, environments, restaurants, bars you know, all of those things. Um, and, and there is enough evidence, if you look in the literature, um, that homemade masks, uh, masks with certain materials actually can be effective. Maybe they're not N95, but they can reduce um, both the amount of viruses that are emitted in particles and conveying particles, virus-laden particles, from, uh, from sources and also protect those who are potential receptors. So, all, you know, none of that was new. And that could have been said, and it wasn't said. And so we had people that were doing things that they probably shouldn't have been doing early on in the pandemic. Let me ask you this, Dean Corsi. Uh, as President Academy of Fellows, International Society of Indoor Air Quality and Climate, um, you allude to transformation that is going to be necessary during this period of the pandemic and to prepare for future coronavirus or influenza pandemics that are airborne in the same way. Mm -hmm. um, what is your vision for the realistic short-term investment based on perhaps what resources schools have available today, restaurants, other indoor facilities, and, and then from short-term to the longer-term investments that would require greater innovation and resources uh, and ultimately government investment, private sector investment that may not exist now? It's a great question. So I've done a, a lot of thinking about schools and I've written about schools and I've done a lot of modeling of 
different types of school classrooms, including my own university. I've been very involved with modeling a whole lot of classrooms in my own university since the pandemic hit. Um, I think understanding the nature of the source, um, if possible, if possible, uh, you know, the best thing to do is to reduce sources in the indoor environment. That's always been the mantra of those of us in the indoor air quality field. Get rid of the sources and then you don't have to worry about everything else, right? Max von Pettenkofer, for, I think, 1858, one of the fathers of the indoor air quality field, and I'm paraphrasing now, but basically said, if you walk into a room and there's a pile of manure in the middle of the room, the solution is not to ventilate. The solution is to remove the pile of manure. And, and that's that's been um, part of the constitution, I think, of people that do indoor air quality research. So reducing sources, you can do that with you know low-cost testing. If we get to a point where we can do uh, uh, low-cost testing for the masses to just basically keep them out of buildings uh, other than their own homes. Um, wearing masks, requiring masks of everybody who's in an indoor environment that's not their own home. We, we've seen that, and that's one of the great things that's come out of this pandemic in terms of new knowledge is really the effectiveness of everybody wearing a mask. And everybody has to wear a mask because it's an asymptomatic uh, disease that you, you don't know who's infected. So you want to make sure the infector is also wearing a mask. And, and then reducing sources by de-densifying buildings, more people working at home if they can. If you have half as many people in an office building, uh, then you reduce the probability that there's an infector in the office building by 50% uh, or reduce the number of infectors in the office building by 50%. So that's all source control. Um, physical distancing we know is really important. And from the very start, and I got some pushback on this early on when I was quoted in the media, that the six-foot rule uh, is is insufficient indoors. Um, it's you know, there were a lot of comments made about five micron particles drop out after six feet, and that just drove me and other people that understand aerosol science nuts. We know that five micron particles can travel a lot more than six feet on the order of 300 feet at typical indoor air speeds and gravitational settling rates. So, you know, physical distancing needs to be uh, something that we redesign buildings for. And part of that means decluttering buildings. And I think having done work in a lot of elementary and middle school and high school classrooms. There's a lot of clutter in classrooms and we need to figure, figure out how to become a little more Scandinavian and declutter our indoor environments so that we can redesign them for better physical distancing. Uh, timing, you know, we've got to reduce the amount of time that people spend in certain environments. Um, you know, instead of having two hour meetings, can we make these 45 minute meetings? You know, maybe we need to become more efficient when we have meetings in the workplace, et cetera. And then also timing and sequencing and queuing. So for example, my university is putting an entire 75-minute period between every uh, occupied class meeting, and that gives that that gives you a couple of benefits. First of all, any aerosols that were emitted into the air in the classroom by an infector are going to decay down to almost nothing by the time the next class comes in. Uh, but it also gives this long period of time between when one class is leaving and another class comes in, so that you don't have you know close contact in hallways. That's what I mean by timing and sequencing. Uh, better ventilation. I think one of the one of the things that's come out of this is people are realizing now, the general public, the, the importance of ventilation, the importance of bringing outdoor air in, the importance of treating outdoor air if it's polluted outdoor air during wildfires, um, and then also filtration, especially if you can't increase ventilation during things like wildfire events. Um, portable air cleaners. I've done a lot of research on portable air cleaners in the past. I know how effective they can be if you choose the right portable air cleaner. It's pretty easy in a 600 square foot space, a small boutique store, a classroom, uh, 
a studio apartment that's shared by a couple of students, it's pretty easy for a, for a HEPA-based portable air cleaner to knock aerosol levels down by 90%, right? Just one device. Uh, it's actually pretty easy to make your own portable air cleaners as well. Um, so th th there's all these the sort of layered risk reduction strategies that I think we need to be thinking about for buildings. And it may not be necessary to employ all of them in every building. Um, if, you can, if you can increase ventilation easily to, to very high levels of, of percent outdoor air supply, then maybe you don't have to, you know, maybe you can back off a little bit on spending the money on, on, on uh, MERV 13, 14, 15 filters and your mechanical system. So I think it's sort of a combination of all of those things. And, and I, I do think that the public is tuning in to all of those things now, perhaps for the first time. And, and, and I hope that a lot of the terms that are being used, HEPA, for example, um, uh, are, are, are getting, you know, mixed into the, the, the national kind of lexicon. I mean, certain things we can do in the short term uh, are very inexpensive, right? We, we ought to, uh, we ought to be requiring that everybody wear masks in indoor environments. That doesn't cost anything. It's really more of an administrative issue and perhaps in some places a political issue. Physical distancing, you know, these things are cheap, right? And they have, they have great benefit in terms of risk reduction, timing and timing sequences that I mentioned earlier. Some of the other ones, when we get to advanced filtration, uh, even uh, ultraviolet germ germicidal irradiation, um, increased ventilation, there are costs associated with those things. And so when we're, when we're talking about schools, which you, which you mentioned in your question, I think schools need help. I've worked with a lot of school districts in, in my 25 years at, in Texas when I was at the University of Texas at Austin. School districts in affluent, you know, public school districts in affluent areas as well as in, in less affluent areas in the Rio Grande Valley. And I can tell you that whether it's affluent or less affluent, school districts tend to be strained for resources and also be, tend to be strained for uh, personnel who understand things like filtration technology. Um, so I've, I've sampled in hundreds of, of school classrooms in Texas. And what I find generally is that uh, classrooms, buildings, the classrooms that are in are woefully underventilated. And almost 100% of the time, the reason for that is to save energy uh, so that the utility bills are lower. And I think we have to get somehow get past that. And that means school districts are going to need more financial resources to do the right thing. Right? So there are things we can do now that cost nothing. There are things that uh, down the road we can do better that do cost something. And um, I hope that that down the road is not too long from now because as, as you know and I know and I think everybody knows that key to getting our economy started again is getting, is getting children back in schools. And we shouldn't do that until it's safe to get children back in schools. And that means uh, low you know, community infection rates, but also schools that are protective for the children, staff, and teachers that are in them. And the connected point is there has been a war on science. Uh, there's been a war on the validity, the integrity, um, and the necessity of, of science. So when I spoke most recently with the ousted geographer who was counting the cases in Florida and the governor decided to eliminate her because she was accurately reporting the stats. Now that's just one example of many during this pandemic period of, of anti-science yeah. in our government. 
and in the electorate too. So what would be your final analysis of how we can bring together a coalition of citizens that, if, if not uniform, is uh, strong enough to defeat um, the legitimization of, of the anti-science rhetoric and action? Yeah, it's tough. I've never seen anything like this in my lifetime. I'm 60 years old. This is the first time I've seen such polarization in our country and such an anti-science uh, place that we're at, right? So um, I'm not a politician or a policymaker. It's hard for me to conceive of how we bring people together. I do think that scientists need to just keep repeating the facts. We need to keep repeating the facts. And, and um you know, we can't do that with the help of people like you and journalists. So you're you're the conduit between researchers, scientists, engineers, uh, and the general public. So we need we need to work as closely as possible with journalists. Um, you know much better than than most scientists and engineers how to convey complex information to the public. I think the other thing we need to do is to get more scientists and engineers involved in in politics. You know, there just aren't a lot of uh, political leaders at the state level or the federal level that are engineers. I think right now there might be one in the Senate um, and uh, or scientists. What would be the most effective way ultimately to prove the aerosol or airborne transmission in a way that's not anecdotal? We've heard so many of those stories about folks who took the precautions, wore masks, and still contracted COVID, um, presumably through airborne transmission. So, you know, is there a way that you foresee being most effective in showing this really does exist, you know, in the air? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, right now it's hard to prove any of the four major transmission routes, right? Direct contact, fomites, close contact large, with large droplets or concentrated aerosols or far field aerosols. So it's hard to prove any of those. I think that the visualization methods that some people have been using to show, you know, fluorescent particles or particles that are suspended in air traveling more than six feet, you know, that are, uh, that can be inhaled by individuals that, you know, are far from an infector in an indoor space, especially for the poorly ventilated indoor space. And then you see, as you increase ventilation, how that, those particles are dispersed and essentially diluted. That, that's a pretty powerful visualization. My sense is that a lot of people learn from visual things as opposed to being told by people um, this is this is the truth right um, dose is a really hard concept for people to to wrap their heads around that you know dose is it's what's in your breathing zone uh, what your breathing rate is volumetric breathing rate if you're doing aerobic exercise in the gym you're taking in 10 15 times as much air as somebody sitting in a classroom uh, in kind of sedentary position you know in the time you're in the environment and, and all of those things, it's, 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 it's just hard to explain to the public. I think visualization is, is powerful. Uh, I don't know if we're ever going to get to a place where we can say, we've proven that in this specific case, 79% of the transmission was from uh, aerosols in the far field and 20% was from closed contact droplets and you know 5% was from fomites and people touching surfaces. I, I don't think we're ever going to get there. And I think even if we got there with very sophisticated modeling, it'd be hard to explain that to the public. So, so very, um, um, very, very good visualizations are 
I think are powerful, but I, I don't think they ever get us to the place where where everybody's going to say, aha, that's the smoking gun. That's where we are. And I think every single scenario is going to be different in terms of its attribution of how people got infected. The right? fact that Some- you say, Dean, that this is the most perilous time you've seen in the climate of discourse that threatens fact uh, in our capacity to make policy on the basis of fact, that is frightening, but I'm heartened to know that you are doing the work that you are at Portland State. Richard Corsi, uh, Professor Dean, uh, appreciate your time today. Thank you so much, Alex. I appreciate your time as well.